Welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. It's the same crew, same uh, same lineup as always. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeff. Joining me from a remote location is my co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, welcome. How you doing? Uh, same crew, but I'm I'm dressed rather differently this week. I'm in my chauffeur outfit, and I don't even know why. Especially since you cannot drive. It's kind of odd that yeah. you would do something like that. I am completely yeah. confused, though. I I mean, if that isn't confusing enough, I've been thinking that next week is Ricky Henderson's birthday for like the last five days. So I'm a bit confused as well. That's a big day. That is. It's a big day. The whole world, well, most of the world celebrates it. We'll put it that way. As they should. Yes. All right, let's get into it. We've got some uh, some fun things to talk about in the uh, main part of the show. We're going to talk we're going to get into contracts, which I mean, contract law is one of my favorite things to discuss. So uh, we're going to discuss that. I, we're also going to discuss uh, something we've discussed in the past, but we're going to do we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about Merkel's boner, but we're going to talk oh, about yeah. the actual game that they had to replay because of it, which we've never really gone in depth about. We've just talked about Fred Merkel and and his mistake. But uh, we'll talk about the actual replay of that game a little bit later. But first, Mark, we never want to go into this show cold. We are getting older, so we need even longer to kind of stretch out, shake the cold out of our bones. So let's start off with a little BP first. All right, let's do it. All right. First of all, way back when, you talked about an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Mighty Casey which yes. included a robot pitcher. And yes. we've t- you talked about it, then we talked about it when uh, we talked about the, the Wrigley Field that was in Los Angeles, because that's where they shot it. I found right. this, uh, this interesting bit on social media the last week. So remember the Simpsons episode, Homer at the Bat? You got yes. Griffey, Mattingly, Daryl Strawberry, Strawberry. All, all, these, yeah. all these ringers. Well, Mr. Burns in that episode is wearing a uniform with the name Zephyrs on the front of it. You you remember that at all? I do, I do. Well, do you remember what the name of the team that the Mighty Casey, the robotic pitcher, played for? Um, was it was it the New Orleans Zephyrs by chance? It was the Hoboken Zephyrs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the uh, New Orleans Zephyrs so was, was a real. A yeah, the New Orleans Zephyrs was a real team. They're now the Baby Cakes, but yeah, ah, they, which is fantastic. I one hundred percent would be willing to bet that this was a nod to the Mighty Casey when they put Mister Burns in the Zephyrs uniform. I'll bet it was a Hoboken <laughs> yeah. Zephyrs jersey. That's good. All right, next. So today, this show is dropping on December fifteenth. Something. In baseball history actually happened today, which is, I mean, things happen every day, but I mean, this is kind of unique. Today, in 1896, so you were just, you were just repeating the fifth grade for the first time in, in oh, 1896. Sure. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first pitching machine was created by a Princeton professor. His name was Charles E. Hinton. And he demonstrated it in the Harvard, or no, not the Harvard, excuse me, the Princeton University Gymnasium. Don't I don't want to hear 
I don't want to hear it from all our Harvard grads that are listening. I, do, you, do you think anybody from Harvard is listening to our show? I assumed everyone from Harvard listens to our show. <laughs> maybe that's on me. But uh, he was a mathematics instructor, and he created this device that resembled a rifle, which shoots the ball towards wherever you aim it. There's some drawings, I'll link it in the show notes, of it actually shows somebody holding this thing like it's a rifle and aiming it at a batter. But it, it was modeled after a rifle, but nobody actually held it when you wanted it to fire. It was actually triggered by the batter who would step on a plate that was connected via wires to this thing. So he set it oh. up for an exhibition game at one point between the Newark Field Club and the Orange YMCA. I don't know. The orange YMCA. Don't know if they were rivals with like the green YMCA or what, but it was an exhibition game. It took him over okay. an hour and a half to set this thing up, first of all. So they started a little late. Then there was a quote notable delay between being able to fire it. So they it would blast a pitch in there and then it would take like five to ten minutes to reload it for the next pitch. Very time efficient. <laughs> Batters on both sides said they were a bit cautious stepping on a plate that fired a baseball powered by gunpowder towards them. I can see why. Remember, this is this is in the 1800s, too. So, right. Well, we didn't even wear helmets back then. So, you know, it's just like step in and, you know, take one for the team if you have to (laughs) get on base any way you can. Uh, Well, it's it was said that the device did work. It was deemed (laughs) impractical for use. So that is why. That is not what a pitching machine is these days. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk about something. You disparaged grapefruit last week. I did. I did. Yeah. So uh, both uh, Omar Vizquel and grapefruit, we have now learned you are not impressed with either. But I wanted to talk about the grapefruit leak real quick. So we know that the Cactus League is in Arizona and Grapefruit League is in Florida for spring training. And I think yes. it's pretty obvious why they are referred to as the Grapefruit and the Cactus League. I would like to offer a different theory as to how the Grapefruit League got its name. Let's head back to right. spring of 1915. You were just repeating the eighth grade for the third time at this point. The, yes, my, uh, pr- my, my principal said, Mark, uh, do you want to repeat the eighth grade? And I said, I don't know if I could do it exactly. <laughs> But I will give it my best shot. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Go on. Uh, So spring 1915, Dodgers manager Wilbert Robinson and then outfielder Casey Stengel had an idea. At this point, there was a female pioneer in aviation named Ruth Law, who had been dropping golf balls from a plane onto a golf course as a stunt in Florida. So these guys thought, hey, she should drop a baseball, and the manager, Wilbert Robinson, he can catch it out of this plane as a stunt. So one version of the story says that Stengel arranged to switch out the baseball for a grapefruit to prank his manager. Law herself said that it was not until she was in the air that she realized she had no baseball on the plane, only a grapefruit that she was going to eat for lunch. <laughs> Now, first of all, is she in the air so long that she's like, I've got to take my lunch up here. And then all, she she's, then she's, all, she, all it is is a grapefruit. Like, 
I'm not buying that. Yeah, what? Just skip lunch for goodness sakes if you're going to just eat a grapefruit. But also, if you're going up in this plane and it's part of a stunt, you're like, all right, we're going to drop a baseball. And then you get up there and you're like, who brought the baseball? I, I, I thought you brought the baseball. <laughs> no. Wow. This wow. all this that... all smells of an old, old story from 1915, but it's good and it, it gets better. Here. Mm-hmm. So regardless, she's up there in the air. The the Dodgers and assorted media are down. I'm assuming this was in Vero Beach. It's in Florida. She drops the grapefruit. Robinson, still thinking it's a baseball, you know, is getting under it. This has got to be hard, though, because it's got to be moving really fast. And I don't know how high up she was, but I'm assuming that this thing's got some speed behind it. So he gets under it and catches it, which is a feat in itself. But when he catches it in his glove, it explodes just like Casey Stengel <laughs> says he wanted to have happen, which is why he wanted a grapefruit. Plus, a grapefruit's a lot bigger than a baseball, too. <laughs> so, it's easier to see. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if he panicked as it got closer. He's like, that thing's big. Wait, what? But he catches it. It explodes. <laughs> he's covered in grapefruit juice and pulp. And he's a bit traumatized. And he definitely was stunned. And he looks all over at this juice and this pulp and he and he thinks it's blood and he starts yelling, help, I'm dying, help, help, running around. <laughs> Needless to say, oh, the team there watching this thought it was hilarious. Uh, Robinson, after a bit of time and cleaning up, realized that it was a joke and he found the humor in it as well. But that's a dangerous joke <laughs> to, to play. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, one, just throwing anything out of an airplane, and two, telling a guy to stand underneath it—that's that yeah. takes some guts. I mean, that, I guess nobody d- decided to research the laws of physics. I no. don't know. <laughs> I mean, that thing—if they would have hit him in the head—probably would have concussed him at least. And this was oh, yeah. this was kind of uh, around the same time. Remember, we talked about Gabby Hartnett, the catcher for the Cardinals. He caught yep. a ball that was dropped out of the top of the Washington Monument, which was dangerous. Wow. So I again, I couldn't find out how high or low this plane was flying, but still, it's going at a good clip, and they're dropping a big thing out of it. Yeah, I just thought I thought that was. It was stupid, but that was interesting. So that's that's the worst thing to happen like that since WKRP oh, threw those turkeys out I of there. I swear to God, I thought helicopter. turkeys could fly. <laughs> <laughs> wow! If you don't understand that, you're probably under forty. But please go research it. I it's it's all over Twitter. Usually every Thanksgiving, but it's pretty funny. Herb Tarlick and uh, Les yes. Nesman just. Two of the great characters of of sitcoms. All right. I, I, I'm not going to take us to Kangaroo Court, but I do have our, our buddy, uh, our buddy Christopher Cook did send me a note. We were talking last week. I was mentioning some of the odd team names from the Virginia League, and I mentioned the uh, Lynchburg Shoemakers. And both you and I both made a comment about you made Lynchburg lemonade and I talked about Jack Daniels. Well, that's not that that's Lynchburg, Tennessee, apparently not Lynchburg, Virginia. So we were we were a state or two off. But that is alcohol related more than baseball related. So I'm I'm yes, I'm not going to fine us. That's a good point. I agree 100 percent. No fine. (laughs) 
But thank you. Uh, thank you, Chris, for writing in and telling us about that. Let's see. We got a couple of answers. I am not sure if I remember. I'm, I'm looking through our feed here, and I'm not sure if anybody actually got our trivia question right last week, which I think you actually said you know the answer. So let's okay. ask the question one more time, and then we'll see if you if you do indeed have the answer right. We talked about Burt Blylevin and his 1986 season where he gave up 722 home runs. My question was, what? who hit the most home runs off of Burt Blylevin in 1986? And uh, Mark, who do you think that was? I said I knew the answer because, uh, man, that must have been a week ago. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, let's narrow it down. American League. You were very <laughs> assured when you said, "I'm," because I, I asked you and you said, yeah, well, I, I know the answer. And now I, it's nothing. Wow. I do not believe you will find any evidence that I said I knew the answer. Oh, are you <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm going to insert the clip right here. Who hit the most home runs off of Burt Bly 11 in 1986? Do you have any, any clues? Yeah, I, I, I know the answer, but I don't want to say it. <laughs> okay, if I was so positive, it had to have been, um, no, I don't have any idea. <laughs> I can tell you it wasn't Kirby Puckett. No, it was not Kirby Puckett or Ken Herbeck or anybody else that was teammates <laughs> with Burt Blylevin that year. You are correct. It was Ron, Ma, and Pa Kittle. No kidding. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have got that one. Chicago White Sox. He hit four off of Purple Eleven that year. Ow. They were Ow. all within two starts. They finished up a series and then they started another series on July 18th and then July 23rd. He had two home runs in both of those games against Purple Eleven. We got to have him on the show so we can ask him about that. Oh, uh, well, you know, he was on uh, on the Turn a Pair podcast with uh, with Chris had a very disparaging story about Ricky Henderson. So I would love to have him on so that we can talk about it. Ron Kittle. Well, we, we, we brought up to uh, Ralph Terry. You yeah. know. <laughs> so you gave up probably the most famous walk-off home run in <laughs> yeah. baseball history. And you brought up Rocky Calavito, and he just went, oh. Yeah. Well, and remember, <laughs> I also brought up the uh, the Joe Carter walk-off to Reggie Jefferson. That didn't go over so well yeah. either. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, got, I have no problem bringing these things up. Um, I noticed. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's move on. I got another question for you. I, I like this question. And this will take some research if, you, if you're going to do it. Which jersey number has been worn by the most rookies of the year? Wow. So, of course, rookie, okay. rookie of the year only goes back, I think, till the 60s or somewhere around that. So it's not you're not going back to the 1860s. But uh, the jersey number most often worn by the player who has been awarded the rookie of the year. So you've okay. got uh, you've got 101 possible answers. That's right. So I'm you, working on it already. I'm going to get 101 DMs from one person. I can guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will give you the answer to that question next week. And uh, Mark, let us now get right into it. Uh, I'm All right, have, let's do it. I'm going to have you go first. Okay. All right. So Mark. As I said at the beginning of the show, contract law is something that draws the listeners in. It grabs them by the by the collar and it just 
they're they're into it. So let's talk some baseball contracts. Yeah, I uh, I started thinking about the ginormous contracts we uh, we see nowadays, and I started thinking, you know, when did when was the first contract that was like this, or when was the first ten million dollar contract, and when was the first contract with a no trade clause, and so on. So I started doing a little bit of research, and I, I I found out that not all of baseball history agrees on who signed the first baseball contract. Some instances, it's a guy named John J. Ryan and George Bird, William Ballard Osborne. Those are the three, and they all played for, in Rockford, they played for the Forest City Baseball Club. Not the Rockford okay. Peaches. No, no. Um, that was in 1871. A little more research found at the Hall of Fame, there is a contract between the New Chicago's and Levi Myrell. My, I don't know how, it's M-E-Y-E-R-L-E. It's like Meyer, but they threw an L-E on the end just to confuse you. <laughs> so Levi Meyerly, there, formerly of the Athletic Club of Philadelphia, they agreed on a one-year from February 15th, 1870 through February 14th, 1871. Player would receive $125 a month for a total of 1500 In my estimation, that was the first real baseball contract right there. So Levi Impronounceable Meyerly. <laughs> that was his nickname, right? right? Yeah, that's right. The Unpronounceable. It was... Uh, Pretty cool nickname. You'll find that a lot of times that people will bring up Cap Anson's contract from 1971. It was a, uh, and I, I looked it up, and it's very interesting. It was um, Cap Anson was one of the first people to sign a big contract. And uh, I, I started looking through the contract, and it had some interesting portions in it. Uh, I thought I'd read a few to you. Cap Anson's 1871 contract, the Forest City Baseball Club of Rockford, Illinois, now the new Chicago's. He agreed to abstain from the use of alcoholic liquors unless medically prescribed and to conduct himself both off and on the ball ground in all things like a gentleman. So <laughs> we need those today again. Yes. Here's another part to report promptly for duty at the grounds of the club for all games and for practice at the hours designated there by the officers of the club and upon the grounds to abstain from profane language, scuffling and light conduct and to discourage the same in others. Got that? Be on so time. Be cursing people on that. Be on time. Yeah, be on behave. Time. Don't drink. <laughs> and don't swear. All right. And, uh, you, in, the, in the agreement, it says you agree to practice at least two and a half, two and a half hours each day wow. on every day deemed for practice. Yeah. And uh, at practice, he will use his best endeavors to perfect himself in play, <laughs> always bearing in mind that the object in view in every game is to win. There you go. That was, uh, I thought that was I would funny. love to see some owner try and sneak that into a contract today and just see what a player would say. Right. <laughs> I, I, I found, I, it was funny because I wasn't going to talk about it, that particular contract, but then I saw all these funny little tidbits and then I thought, yeah, I got to share that one. That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, now we can do this. I'm, I'm going to do this kind of in a, because you're always trivia testing me. I'm going to trivia. I'm going to throw these out there at you and see if you can get close. All right. We're going to go over the milestones in as far as salary goes. All right. So the first player to make $10,000 a year, who do you think it was? Um, 10,000. That wasn't the mechanical man, was it? No, no, no. Charlie Gary. You've heard of him. I don't know who. Ty Cobb. Nope. Guy I, named Ty Cobb. I don't Tyrus know. Raymond Cobb. Huh. Maybe we should talk oh, okay. about him sometime. 
Tyrus Raymond was his name. I don't know if he went by Ty or Ray or <laughs> Ray Ray. But uh, all right, so Ty Cobb, of course, makes sense, right? So we're going to go into the early twenties. Fifty thousand dollar contract for Charlie Garinger. That's answer. just going to be my answer every time. <laughs> no, <laughs> Babe no, Ruth. no. Babe Ruth, very good. Babe Ruth signed with the Yankees in 1922 to play for $50,000. And the first $100,000 contract went to a guy by the name of the Hebrew Hammer. Uh, oh, uh, Greenberg, Hank Greenberg. Hank Hank Greenberg, very good. He, he got, was paid 100000 a year starting in January 1947. So there was your first six-figure contract. Now your first seven-figure contract, November 1979, $1 million a year. Um, Two. Was it Nolan Ryan? Bingo. You got it. Nolan oh. Ryan, a million a year. Sign I would pull Houston that one out. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I think I know who the first $3 million contract was. Okay. And we'll, we'll go straight to that. Who was the first $3 million contract? Wasn't it Kirby? You got it. Kirby Puckett. November 1989 with the Twins. Ricky was the second. Ah, see, that's how I know that. About. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to go to seven figure contract. Who got the first seven figure contract? Uh, I was it a rod. Not quite his time yet. So before, before a rod, I don't think it was Griffey. Yes. Nope. I don't know. Tell me. Mr. Albert Bell. Oh, boy. signed an $11 million a year contract with the White Sox. And December 2000, the first $20 million a year contract. Tw Any idea? In 2000, I'm going to say A-Rod again. He ended up being second. Second? First, first to the table was just Manny being Manny, signing a $20 uh -huh. million dollar contract. A-Rod did sign afterwards, but for $21 million, So he got a little bit more squeezed out of him. And uh, the, the contract we're all looking at as... The uh, the most impressive contract nowadays, a $30 million man, Mr. Mike Trout, making $34 million a year. Jeez. I mean, if you're going to yeah. if you're going to say somebody's worth it, who do you think is more yes. worth it? Trout for that amount or a rod for that amount, you know, or, or Bell or Manny back at that point? Yeah. I mean, Trout uh, is, I, is the more well-rounded player for sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and all that subway well, money that Trout's making, too. Don't forget that. That's right. All he's got to do is eat subways and say he likes them. Jeez. Okay, so a few more things. You, you've seen some provisos and uh, addendums and little things and contracts that people throw in or they ask for something special, like we talked about Charlie Kerfeld and yep. how in, in his uh, contract he specified he wanted 37 uh, boxes of lime green jello. Yeah. <laughs> and how, uh, who was it? Turk Wendell wanted to play for free one year. Yes, that's right. And so I found a few weird little throw-ins on people's contracts um, that you might find amusing. A.J. Burnett, when he signed with Toronto in 05, uh, he required that his wife receive eight round-trip limo rides from his home in Maryland to Toronto each <laughs> season. Oh, my God. How long is a is a drive from Toronto to Maryland. Well, I took the incentive and looked it up. Oh, it's good. I was just hours. about to do it. All right. <laughs> hit me up. Uh, yeah. Nine hour ride, eight times a season. Man, take care of the wife right there. 
I don't know. I, I didn't look that much up, but uh, she's like channeling John Madden. Sorry, football yeah, reference. Pretty impressive. Well, yeah, now, we didn't, don't do that here. Didn't Roberto Alomar, didn't he in his contract with the Blue Jays, didn't he get a, a room in the Sky Dome Hotel? I think so, yeah. I don't have that on me specifically, but I remember that. Dice K, he mm-hmm. had interesting things in his contract. Uh, he had like um, excessive clauses for housing allowances and a personal massage therapist. Contractually, Dice K was guaranteed the number 18 in his contract. Mm. So he didn't have to go steal it from somebody else, ask for it, or offer two cases of beer. He just had it in his contract. And remember, we talked about that 18 in in Japanese baseball is the number for a starting pitcher. That's what that's right. That's what you want to you want to be. So that's 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 very interesting. He had that put in contractually. Kevin Brown of the Los Angeles Dodgers signed a seven-year, $105 million deal uh, for the 1999 season. And in this deal, it was guaranteed 12, count them 12, one dozen round-trip private jet trips from L.A. to his hometown in Macon, Georgia, for his family. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I, I'm fairly positive in all of Ichiro's contracts. He had first-class round-trip tickets to to and from Seattle and Tokyo for his wife. Ah, yes. There you go. Kurt Schilling. He had a, he had a, uh, he had rewards for maintaining his weight. Uh, gives him a million dollars for appearing on any voters, three man Cy Young ballot. So all he had to do was appear on a ballot and he got an extra million dollars. Jeez. <laughs> you just go to somebody who's voting and go, Hey, I got 10 grand. If you vote for me. Although baseball doesn't take kindly to gambling, so well, you know, Kurt Schilling is really good at losing other people's money, though. So I'm looking at you, state of Rhode Island, <laughs> or wherever you built all those millions out of. Ichiro signed a contract extension that stipulated uh, that he gets an interpreter, uh, the plane tickets that you were speaking of, and the club has to give him a Jeep or a Mercedes SUV. So <laughs> I no guess Japanese one of those car, is cheaper than the other. Uh, Carlos Beltran, seven-year, $119 million deal in 05. Um, he, he, uh, in his contract, he asked for a conditioned ocular enhancer. Glasses? Which is a thing that it throws, yeah, kind of, no. It's like a pitching machine, but it throws numbered colored tennis oh, balls yeah. over 150 miles an hour. So it can help you pick up, you know, the speed of a pitch ball and so on, help you look at rotation, all that stuff. But he, apparently he couldn't come up with one. So he had to put into his contract that he, that he got one. <laughs> his, his search on Amazon didn't come up with anything. So he's like, I'm right. going to make, make some intern uh, at the, at the Mets do it. Or was, was that with the Mets or was that when he signed with the Astros? Uh, that was the Mets. The Mets. Yeah. Make somebody, so, make somebody at Chase Stadium look it up. Save the best till last, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Houston Astros, 2005, Roy Oswald. So nationally, it was a nationally championship series, and Astros owner Drayton McLean said that to Oswalt, if they win, he's specifically going to get him his life's dream, which is a bulldozer. <laughs> so uh, Oswalt wanted a bulldozer. They they agreed to it in the contract. He kicked the Cardinals' rear ends, and they went to the World Series. And Mr. McLean came through with a Caterpillar D6N XL. I looked it up. That's not some minor little caterpillar bulldozer he got a, he actually got a real nice bulldozer out of the deal well could he not 
I'm looking at, at at large cat brand bulldozer prices right now in 2020. The base price is 350000 You mean to tell me Roy <laughs> Oswald couldn't come up with that kind of cash with what he was making? Maybe he felt that if he spent the family's money, his wife would think it was a bit too whimsical. But if someone hands him <laughs> a bulldozer, hey, honey, look what I drove home, you know? He should just put that in his contract to just give it to him. No, no need to win anything. Just, I also want a bulldozer. <laughs> exactly. So those, those are the weird little provisos out of contracts uh, and, and the uh, contract uh, who, uh, who got what at what time and breaking the milestones and all that stuff. I thought you'd enjoy that. That was fun. No, I, I did enjoy that. All right. So uh, are you ready to, uh, to talk about Merkel's mistake? Merkel's. Let's do it. Stinking Merkel. You know, we beat around the bush last time and we came up with a better name for it. But, yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we're just going to play it down. We're going to use the name, but we're going to use it sparingly because that's what everybody knows it as. Of course, we're talking about Merkel's boner. Fred Merkel committed a bad, a bad mistake that cost his team. But if you want to hear all about this mistake, please go back. It was one of our really kind of early episodes and I forgot to go back and look and see what episode exactly. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes though, but it's, it's, it's back there. We're on show number 96 right now. And I'm thinking that was like in the tens. So you've got to, you got to go back a ways. <laughs> but uh, what happened is that game ended up having to be replayed. They had to replay it because the uh, Cubs and the giants were in a battle with the Pirates and a whole bunch of that kind of stuff that I'm going to hit up here. So let's talk about this replay of the uh, the Merkel's mistake game. All right. Merkel was only 19 years old when he committed the, the, the mistake. The unforgivable sin is what I wrote down. He had only gotcha. played in 50 games in the big leagues before that game. So I, I guess oh, I never thought of, that he was that young. I thought he had had more time in the big leagues, but he makes this mistake, and obviously it screwed him up for life, we talked about mentally. Yeah. Uh, quickly to review the game, the game was originally played on September 23rd, 1908. The Giants and the Cubs were battling each other as well as the Pirates to see who would represent the National League in what would have be the fifth World Series. The Giants and the Cubs were tied 1-1 in the bottom of the ninth inning, two outs. Merkel was on first. Our buddy Moose McCormick was the winning run. He's on third base. And Al Birdwell singles. McCormick crosses the plate with the apparent winning run, but Fred Merkel never bothered to touch second base. We've covered reasoning as to why he might not have. But that left a force play in play, I guess. And the Giants took advantage of that, recording the third out on a force, thusly negating the tying run, and the game was determined to have ended in a tie. Well, the season ended two weeks later, and the Cubs and the Giants were tied atop the table with a 98-55 record, so it was determined that the game was to be replayed on October 8th at the Polo Grounds. So, it's 1908. It's New York and Chicago in a winner-take-all trip to the World Series to face the Tigers, so it's a pretty big deal. The New York Times put it pretty succinctly, I thought. They said, quote, It's impossible to believe that the Earth is still on the same track as it was clinging to 24 hours ago, end quote. Big deal. 
I mean, it would be a big deal now, but I mean, you know, baseball was it in 1908. Yeah. Everybody fixated on baseball. So, and, and have two big teams. This is incredible. So this is a hot ticket. Obviously there was no ESPN, no MLB.tv. You either at the game or you were listening to it on the radio overnight before the game. So October 7th, that night, Night watchmen at the polo grounds reported spending a good portion of the night rooting small boys out from under seats and from under the grandstand, as well as intercepting others trying to climb over the fences under the cover of darkness. So in my mind, I'm told I'm just seeing small boys dressed like the cast of Newsies. But they're like <laughs> as dirty as like a chimney sweep, and they're just doing anything yeah. to get in the stadium for the game. Straight the next out of day. Oliver, yeah, That's right. <laughs> Probably speaking please, with him. Sir, can with I a have a cockney accent, Governor? Please, just let me watch the game. Please, sir, how about an aisle seat? <laughs> so the game is scheduled to start at three. By one o'clock, there are forty thousand people already in the stands. The Giants had only averaged 11,000 fans per game the rest of the season. So this is just crazy. The stadium had to be sealed off and officials were not letting any more fans into the park. But people are just desperate to get in there and see this. So they start to congregate on subway tracks, on the 155th Street Viaduct, and on Coogan's Bluff, which overlooked Coogan's Basin where the polo grounds was actually located. They were even climbing onto the high-pitched roof of the grandstands. This is, I mean, they're just anywhere they can go to catch a glimpse of any part of the stadium. There are people there. This was also written in the New York Times. Quote, they climbed 100-foot poles around the subway tracks. One man fell off a pole and died nearly instantly. Frank McBride, who was an enthusiastic follower of baseball, but his vacant place was quickly filled, end quote. So a dude climbs a hundred foot pole, falls, dies. Somebody else immediately replaces him just to see this game. What, what do you think? What do you say to something like that? Well, I guess you're not going to be using it. Yeah. Your mind? <laughs> well, it's available. So dibs. His, his wife was with him and uh, she did not come down. She wanted to see that game. No, she took, so. she was the one that took his place. There were fights and reports of clubbing by the police. Some things, I guess, never change. Fans fighting each other just for the sake of fighting because there were a lot of people there. One account likened the scene to the gladiatorial combat of the Roman Colosseum. These scuffles, though, were not just limited to the fans. Both teams were talking an enormous amount of smack to each other during batting practice. While the Cubs were still taking BP, the Giants reemerged from their dugout and stormed the field to take infield. Cubs skipper Frank Chance protested the move, but Giants pitcher Joe McKennedy stepped on Chance's toes with his spikes and raised a bat toward him and spit. So... (laughs) (laughs) There'll be none of that. He expectorated in his direction. Chance, (laughs) reportedly, though, was not just an innocent victim. Uh, It's relayed that he told his players in the clubhouse to each pick out a giant player and pick on them and, quote, call them every name in the book, end quote. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Bowling was not the only alleged misdeed being uh, perpetrated on this day. Uh, 
Joseph Creamer was the team doctor for the Giants and a personal friend of manager John McGraw. Creamer allegedly cornered Hall of Fame umpire Bill Clem, who was umping first base that day, underneath the bleachers before the game and offered him $2,500 to, quote, give all the close decisions to the Giants and make sure they win, end quote. So I looked it up. $2,500 in 1908 is worth about $71,000 today. Wow. Um, There are reports that this money came from a well-known politician in New York, which I looked it up and I was expecting to see a Rockefeller or somebody. Couldn't come up with a name that I knew. So just it's a well-known politician. I'll stick with that. There are other claims that this money actually came from pitcher Christy Matheson and John McGraw. So that would be huge news if like one of the best, if not the best pitcher in the game and his manager were trying to bribe an umpire before a winner go home game. Clem rejected this money. He said, uh, not for me. I'm a, I'm going to be a Hall of Fame umpire. He even appealed to have new umpires assigned to the game, but there were none available on that short notice. Creamer would later be banned for life from baseball, though it is a very well-known fact that he was just the fall guy for the bigger names involved in the attempted bribery. So, again, things never change. Yes. The game itself featured a pitching matchup of Christy Matheson for the hometown Giants versus Jack Feister for the Cubs. Feister was the same pitcher who avoided taking the loss in the original Merkel game. But he had fared very well against the Giants all season, despite pitching with extreme pain in his throwing arm. During the initial Merkel game, Feister threw only three curveballs because, unbeknownst to him, he had dislocated a tendon in his arm, in his pitching arm. He had dislocated a tendon. Still pitching. <laughs> oh, that's that's frightening. Yeah. But on this day, he started the game, but only faced five batters, giving up a hit, walking two before he was lifted and replaced by Mordecai Three Finger Brown, who pitched the rest of the game. Matheson gotcha. took the loss as the Cubs prevailed four to two. Following the game, the scene was just as you would have expected a madhouse. Fans streamed onto the field, disappointment, anger, general civil disobedience, you know basically the sentiments of the day. Remember also at the polo grounds, the clubhouses were in straight away center field, which was like 4,000 feet from the dugouts. So as the Cubs ran towards center field, they were accosted by said Giants fans. Cubs starter Feister had a fan pull a knife on him. Are you (laughs) kidding me? Manager Frank Chance was hit in the back of the neck with a glass bottle that was thrown at him with such force that it tore cartilage in his neck and did not allow him to speak above a whisper for some time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're a Philadelphia fan, this is pretty much still commonplace, but this is pretty rough. Uh, this, this seems pretty brutal. Yeah. So the Cubs would go on to face Ty Cobb and the Tigers in the World Series, winning their second in a row, but their last, of course, until the curse of the Billy Goat was broken in 2016. That that was pretty interesting. Just what a madhouse that game must have been. Completely crazy. At my like favorite stadium of all time, too. The, the one stadium I would choose to go to in its heyday, the Polo Grounds. 
Very nice, man. That's uh, that's crazy stuff. I mean, it, I don't know if anybody takes sports that seriously anymore. I mean, to pull a knife on a player, hey, you beat my team. Now I'm gonna stab you. Well, let, let's all calm down a little bit. Well, remember, Monica Sellis was stabbed in the back in the middle of a tennis I, match. So I, you know, I remember were, that. I remember crazies. That. And uh, most of them listen to the show. So uh, good to hear you guys. And they're all from Harvard. All right. So (laughs) let's uh, let's move on now. Let's get to our final segment of the day. It is a segment that we have uh, thusly dubbed Wax Packs Heroes. Gotta pull a Wax Pack Hero. I've got a pair of 1991 Fleer Ultra baseball cards here. Ooh, Fleer Ultra. Very nice. Yeah. So um, we are... Now, it's interesting here. The, the, there's a little, like, blowhole in the back of these. I, I don't think anybody could possibly do anything. But these are not wax packs. So I'm going to assume they have not been opened. But uh, I am going to give you, as usual, a choice between the pack in my left hand and my right hand. Um, I did well with the right, so I'm going to go with the right again. Okay. I'm going to let you go first. Just a reminder, uh, our standings right now, Mark, you have eight wins. I have five. If you are new to this game, we've had, or if you've been around, we've had a little bit of a rule change here recently. We are uh, scoring these based on war of the season that the cards are from. So this will take into account each player's baseball reference war for the 1991 season. We do add some extra sauce on if you uh, meet certain requirements if you are wearing glasses of any sort we'll give you an extra tenth of a win above replacement if you are wearing a mustache you're going to get an extra tenth if you are you know if you could be mistaken for tom Selleck in the dark that kind of mustache you get an extra two tenths of a war for that if you are wearing real stirrups that we can see you're going to get an extra tenth of a war if you're wearing two and ones though that means you are actually below average and uh, we're going to take away a tenth of a point of war if you are wearing sweatbands with your caricature with your jersey number or a mcdonald's logo on it you're going to get an extra tenth of a point of war and if you are wearing high top shoes and uh, along with that if we can see your uh, two-in-one stirrups we're going to minus two tenths of a war because that's just that's awful and that brings the morale down and uh, That's right. then finally, if you are a Hall of Famer, we're going to give you a whole extra point of war. That's a whole extra game if you are a Hall That's of Famer. It's a lot of war. Yeah. So, all right, let's uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, Mark, let's open your pack. These are very uh, well sealed. Wow. I and, hope it's a fortune, Clark. Uh, I'm, is that a vacation reference? Because you called me Clark? Christmas. Christmas vacation. Okay. Trying to be timely. Never seen that uh, that movie, so. Ouch. Yeah. All right, so you get a sticker here. This is a nice sticker. It's an old Expos. Yes. So that's good. Oh, nice. All right, your uh, first player is a pitcher for the Astros, so you probably are pretty familiar with Andujar Cedeno. Oh, sure. Um, he was, I believe he was a hard-throwing guy, um, but I, I don't remember a whole lot about that. Uh, I think it was a starter. Uh, well, actually, no, no, no. he was an infielder. Yeah, wasn't Andrew Arcedeno is a shortstop. I'm thinking of someone else entirely. Yes, Andrew Arcedeno. Uh, I, I caught myself, so I, I can't be, I can't be um, courted. Oh, I was going to make sure. Court that, me. I was going to let you know. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he did not have a great season in '91. This was only his second year in the big leagues. He had a minus point five. 
So uh, that's not good. Yeah, you're going to start out in the in the negative there. Nothing in this on this card though that's going to get you any extra money. Uh, you know, it's nice on the back. They've got another full headshot, and then they've got two full length body shots of him. Here he is swinging a bat, where you can see he's wearing two and one stirrups. But we don't count anything on the back of the card. So that would be uh, we'd have to get licensed for a whole different game if we counted stuff on the back of the card. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think our, our our friends over at Baseball BN Bang Average would probably have an, an issue if we started looking on the back of the card. So we won't do yeah, that. So we don't want to cause any problems. No. Uh, next, you've got outfielder for the Blue Jays. His nickname was Spider-Man because he was deathly afraid of spiders. And uh, he is also thought to have hit the longest home run at Wrigley Field, I learned this last week. It's Glenn Allen Hill. Really? Ah, yes. Um, Glenn Allen Hill had a lot of pop. I mean, that guy swung up back really hard. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about him several times. Uh, he was on the uh, 2000 World Series team with the uh, New York Yankees. He also hurt himself while dreaming about spiders and uh, jumped off the sofa and crashed through a plate glass uh, table, coffee table. Oops. And Oops. Uh, I know he's been managing in the minors recently, but this card, uh, he's definitely wearing two in one stirrups. So that's going to be a minus a tenth of a war. And in 1991, his war was a minus 0.2. So you are, you're going the wrong way here. You're minus 0.8 so far. Uh, next I'm is, cruising. we're getting those out of the way, man. Next is pitcher for the Yankees, Lee Guterman. Lee Guterman was a Mariner for a little while too. Uh, lefty reliever. Correct. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I spelled his name Gutterman, which that is not correct. It is actually Lee Guterman. In uh, 1991, he went three and four with the Yankees. He came up with Seattle, and he ended his career with Seattle. Okay. In 1991, his war was a .9, and he has got some real nice real stirrups, and he's got a mustache. So that is worth uh, 1.1 war. So that'll actually bring you out of the hole and get you in the positive to .3. Yes. Next, we've got an outfielder for the San Diego Padres. It is Mr. Thomas Howard. Thomas Howard. Not familiar. At least I'm not. I'm drawing a blank. He played 10 years in the big leagues, uh, mainly with the Reds. Uh, You probably would remember him in those like sleeveless Reds uniforms. In uh, 1991, just his second year in the big leagues, though, he came up with the Padres. And that year he had a war of 1.8. Not bad. He slashed 249, 309, and 356. Uh, which I can't is, recall anything about him, and he goes and scores me a point like that. How about that? Yeah, that, that's uh, some strangely low numbers to have a war that uh, that healthy. Um, I can't tell if he's got a mustache. Yep, he's got a mustache, and uh, but he's wearing two-in-one stirrups. So that's a wash there on those. But uh, what did I say? 1.8 war. So that'll bring you up nice. to uh, 2.1. All right, so next is a friend of a former guest. He was traded with a former guest, Don August's buddy, Mark Knutson, pitcher for the Brewers. Yeah, Don talked a little bit about him. Mark Knutson uh, is wearing two-in-ones, I hate to tell you, but he's got a mustache, so that'll be a wash. Uh, In 1991, it was his final season in the big leagues, and he had a minus .9 war. Uh, So far, this is a pack of superstars, let me tell you. Well, uh, I... This this drives me crazy how this happens because your next your next player is a Hall of Famer. Oh, nice. Um, I am disturbed to tell you. Or, nope, he's wearing real stirrups. Okay, good. I was going to be very upset. Uh, he's wearing some lime green batting gloves. 
Right on. Yeah. So I think you can guess who this is and why I'm so upset. Um, did he steal a lot of bases, this guy? He is. He, he's been known to pilfer some bases, yes. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, Dave Henderson. No, wait, Ricky Henderson. <laughs> How every time do do we pull each other's <laughs> favorite players? Never know, once do we, time. we. I've never pulled a Ricky, and I don't think you've ever pulled a Nolan. It's disgusting. No, I don't think I have. It's disgusting. If I ever do, if I ever do, I want you to buy me a bulldozer. <laughs> so remember, in 1990, Ricky was MVP. This is 1991. In 1990, he had a 9.9 war, which was tied Jeez. for his highest. He also had a 9.9 in 1985, when he, I think, should have won the MVP. But uh, Donald Mattingly did that year. But uh, he did manage to score a 4.6. War in wow. uh, in this I'll season, yeah. I, you think? <laughs> so you were at one point two. You get a uh, four point six, and then uh, you get an extra point one for being a Hall of Famer. He is clean shaven in this picture. He always had a wispy mustache, but he is clean shaven here. But he does have real stirrups, so you're going to get an extra point one as well, and that'll bring you up to six point nine. Screw you for getting Ricky Henderson. All right. Next pitcher for the Rangers, Scott Champarino. Uh, Champarino was in the A's organization for a bit. Uh, let's see. He was drafted by the A's in 87. Never yeah. played for him in the big leagues. He only spent three years in the big leagues and was with the Rangers. He was the player to be named later when the A's traded for Harold Baines in 1990 at the deadline. Very interesting. Ah, okay. Uh, also uh, was represented by Scott Boris. So he must have thought pretty highly of him. Uh, War, though, only a point three. Didn't play a whole lot. Well, you know what? I'm not going to complain about any any positive movement whatsoever. Even point three is good. Next, you got outfielder for the Blue Jays. We talked about him earlier. He hit a walk-off home run in the final game of World Series as well. It is Joe Carter. Joe Carter, one of the biggest bats of that era, you know, uh, whether it was for the Padres or Blue Jays. That Cleveland. Guy, man, if he, if that guy got a hold of a ball, he crushed it. Also spent a little bit of time with Baltimore and the Giants. There you go. He only spent one year at San Diego. I thought he was there a little bit longer than that. But, yeah, uh, me too. Interesting. He had, uh, yeah, you're right. He had, I mean, he was in 20-plus home runs for 15 years straight. Ended up with 396. In 1991, wow. he was fifth in the MVP validating and had a 4.7 war. Wow. Now, wow. he does have a mustache in this picture, but he also has two and ones. So that'll bring you up to 11.6 on your uh, your, war scale, your your war scale factor, whatever. Next, we have okay. got a closer for the Chicago White Sox. I despise this guy because he, as I've mentioned, hit Terry Steinbach in the head every single year. It's Bobby Thigpen, closer for the White Sox. Uh, Bobby Thigpen, uh, we, he closed for a while, didn't he? I mean, yeah. he, was, he was, I remember him being really good. Uh, wow. He only pitched for nine years. Remember in 1990 hmm. was his big year where he set the record at the time for 57 saves in the season. Yeah. He, he was, when he was on, he was on. So after that, he, he closed 50, he saved 57 and 90. Then in 91, it went to 30 and then 22 and then one, one, zero, zero and out of the game at age 30. Huh. 
So wow. yeah, he really flamed out, didn't he? <laughs> Man, I guess. Uh, only a point one war for this season, but he does have real stirrups on. So you're going to get uh, a point two out of that. That'll bring you to 11.8. You got your second Hall of Famer. Yes, there uh, we go. Very familiar with this guy. I think you even actually pulled him last week. I said he's probably one of your top three Hall of Famers. Designated hitter for the Seattle Mariners. It's Gar. Yes. Edgar Martinez. Hasta caliente. Gotta love it. Gar, or he was nicknamed Poppy as well, apparently. I think most Latin players are called Poppy at some point. Yeah, at one point or another, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see, in 1991, he had a good year. Didn't place in the MVP balloting at anywhere, but he had a 6.1 war. Hey, right on. Yeah, that you can take that all day. Uh, he is a Hall of Famer, so you get an extra point or one point uh, there. Uh, he is wearing two and ones, unfortunately, but he does have a mustache to cancel that out. So you are now at 18.9. You've got back-to-back Hall of Famers. Woo, Yeah. Next, you've got somebody that is also given off a very famous World Series walk-off. It's my boy Eck, Dennis Eckersley. Ah, uh, yes. One of the great closers of all time. Great closers. Also has a no-hitter to his name as a starter. He does. For the Cubs, I believe. Uh, I thought it was with Cleveland. It was when he threw the no-hitter. <clears throat> I could be wrong there. He only pitched for the Cubs for three years. He only pitched for Cleveland for three years, too. But I thought he was with Cleveland when he threw the, new, threw the no-hitter because I thought he threw it to Ray Fossey. But I could be completely off base. Uh, I'm sure someone will hear us and if uh, tell us about it. And if not, we'll bring it up next week. But uh, Dennis Eckersley pitched for 24 years. That is a long time. Wow. Uh, 1991, the A's were still pretty good. He ended up with a 1.5 ERA. Or a war, I'm sorry. A 1.5 ERA would be great. Uh, he is a Hall of Famer, so you get an extra point one. And uh, he's got a mustache, as you can imagine, and he's also wearing real stirrups. So that'll get Beautiful. you point two. War, that'll bring you up to 21.6. Next, you've got a guy that uh, was also a, a member of the Athletics, but uh, not a Hall of Famer. It is here with the Tigers infielder, Tony Phillips. Uh, Tony Phillips can play anywhere you put him, man, and play well. Absolutely. He little, was a Swiss Army dude, but he was a, Yeah, he was a dynamo, too. He was, you know, he's always ready to rumble. Just, uh, very, just a dynamo of a player. I'm looking at his positions by years here in Baseball Reference. And 1988, 5, 4, 7, DH, 6, 8, 3, 9. Wow. I mean, it's like that every year. I mean, just, he could play everywhere. He was one of the best. Yeah, 1991, good year, 5.2 war. Wow. Yeah. Wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, that's, that is incredibly high. He's got a mustache, and he's got real stirrups, too. So uh, you'll get a point two out of that as well. Uh, next pitcher for the lefty for the Cleveland team, it is Greg Swindell. Greg Swindell is uh, another just solid pitcher. They give you 200 innings a year and get out there, and he you know threw some, some pretty darn impressive games over the course of his career. 1991, not a good year. For him, nine no. and sixteen. Okay. But yeah, you're right. Every year, just about over two hundred or really close to two hundred innings pitched. So, one of those workhorse guys. Uh, with that, still though, a three point eight ERA. Wow. Uh, also a member of the USA Olympic team. So, congrats there. Um, I am having a hard time. I think those are two and ones because they are pretty snug. It's kind of hard to tell, but I, I am going to have to take a a point one off of that. Your last card is a uh, checklist card, so that helps me out. Oh, 
but uh, you finished with a 30.7 ERA, uh, ERA uh, 30.7 war. I could take that. I take that any day. Yeah, that uh, that is not bad. Uh, that is going to get you a Hall of Fame consideration, probably. I don't know if it'll get you in. But I hope so. Let's uh, let's open up my pack here and see. You had three Hall of Famers there, including Ricky Henderson. So it's yeah, gonna be... it's tough to beat a uh, three Hall of Fame pack, but uh, you never know, man. It's gonna be hard any to given beat. Day. Yeah. So I start off with a Mets uh, sticker. It's okay. It's the old logo with the city in the background. Uh, I am going to start off though with a Hall of Famer. So that's that's good. Right. You started off negative your first two. This is a guy yes, we did. pulled last week. I told you uh, about his. Uh, prowess as a hockey player as well it's tom glavin yes i remember that so uh tom i heard it through the glavine oh so tom glavin if you remember in 1991 won the cy young award so Uh Uh that means i'm gonna be starting off looking pretty pretty good here that Uh uh, equates to a 8.5 war goodness goodness it's like a quarter of mine already (laughs) plus he's a hall of famer and uh, he is wearing some real stirrups here. So, of course, he is. He's that the perfect. Gets ball me player. 9.6 war on my first card. Come on. You went 20 and 11 that year and had nine complete games. Not bad. Oh, my. Okay, next is a guy I quiz you on his nickname. And I think last time you remembered it. And it's not Lance Johnson, it's the governor. You mean Jerry Brown? There you go. Very nice. <laughs> Bringing back that California politics. Uh, the governor. He played, he's not as uh, useful as Tony Phillips, but there are a couple of seasons here where he played in just about every position. Also led the league in 92 with 16 sacrifice bunts. That's uh, some good, wow, for four years in a row, he had double figures in bunts, which is really not that exciting, but my God, that's that's helpful when you got a guy that you you know you can get up there and bunt. Absolutely. Uh, 91, not a great year for the governor. Uh, Minus 1.3. Oh, Help me out. No, no, not really nice. Uh, He's got a mustache and he's got two and one, so those will cancel out. Next, we've got uh, noted uh, drunk driving expert Mark Grace for the uh, Chicago Cubs. Mark Grace was a solid first baseman, had a little bit of power, could hit 300. He was a good ball player for that era. He was. Didn't wear batting gloves as well, so he gets, you know, props for that. Uh, Looking at his nicknames, you know, I've heard amazing. And I've heard Gracie. I have not heard his third nickname, Little Hurt. <laughs> okay. Pretty funny. I don't know if I'd want to be called Little Hurt. I'm assuming it's in reference to uh, the first baseman on the other side of the city, the Big Hurt. I get that, but I don't, still don't know if I'd want to be called Little well, Hurt. Well, I mean, everybody's little compared to Frank Thomas, so yeah, I know. can see That's that. That's a good, time, good point, but they don't have to advertise it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Mark Grace is uh, not, oh no, he's got real stirrups on there. So that'll get me point one extra. So I'm at 10.5. Next, we've had this guy recently because we made reference to his nickname being Devo. It's Mike Devereaux, outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles. Mike Devereaux played a little while. Uh, Mike Devereaux, we've talked about him recently in 1991, had a pretty good year, a 4.9 war. I'll take that. Wow. I wouldn't have expected that. I would have never guessed Mike Devereaux would have had a 4.9 war at any point in his career. No, me neither. He's got a mustache, but he's also wearing two and one, so those wash out. Next, we have got a rookie of the year from the Cincinnati Reds, and his nickname was Spuds. Was that... um... 
And he's wearing he's Ooh. wearing sport goggles. I'll give you that. Clip. He's got the goggles. Yeah. Okay, that's definitely. Uh, <laughs> oh man, I'm drawing a blank on him. The guy. Oh ah. no, he's probably got some super balls in his bat too. Yes, I know. It's Chris Sabo. Sabo, that's it. I'm totally drawing a blank. He's another guy who liked to argue with the umpires. <laughs> you know, I'll give it to him though. When his bat bursts and the and the the, the super balls came out, he knew he was caught whether he meant to do it or not and he just walked out of the dugout and just took his lumps <laughs> yes. uh 91 not a bad year he was an all-star and uh finished with a, a war of uh, 5.0 i'll take that wow he is also wearing uh sports specs so uh, i'm gonna get extra points for that but he is also wearing two and one so that kind of washes that out yeah all right, next. Boy, we had all these players last week. This is a completely different manufacturer. But uh, next up is outfielder for the Red Sox, Tom Brunanski. Brunanski, yeah. In fact, I mentioned I used to platoon him with Daryl Strawberry yep. at Stratomatic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Last year, uh, last week we were doing 92. This is 91. In 91, he had a minus 0.3 war. So, um, not, wow. Not, not cool, Bruno. Uh, he is wearing well, some uh, real stirrups, though. So uh, that'll, that'll help a little bit. Uh, that puts me at 20.2. Next, we've got uh, not Pedro Martinez, but his brother, Ramon Martinez. Ramon. I had a buddy that used to call him Raymond Martinez. <laughs> so uh, there were two Ramon Martinez that overlapped in the late 1990s. Yes, there was like a Ramon, like a Ramon P. Martinez yeah. or something. <laughs> this, though, is the brother of Pedro, cousin of Denny Bautista. I did not know that. Oh, uh, yeah. Interesting. In the 1991 season, uh, he pitched well enough to get a 3.7 war. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if uh, if these wars have been adjusted because this was the steroid era. So, that you know, they're giving them some some uh, additional war for who they faced. Uh, he's got real mustache. He's got a real mustache. He's got a mustache and real stirrups. <laughs> so that'll get me an additional point too. Do you think we should add, like if somebody's got a fake mustache, you get points? <laughs> no, I think you might. Not see it very often. If you got a minus, if you've got a fake mustache, we're going to take money away, war away. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I have got another Hall of Famer, my second Hall of Famer. And this is one okay. of my favorites. It's Dave Winfield with the Angels uh, here. The legendary Dave Winfield. I, You know what? I went to a Benner Royal Hall once. They were doing a baseball, um, like an orchestral baseball show. And they brought out Dave Winfield to read Casey at the bat. It was pretty awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I looked up and I'm like, that's Dave Winfield. Um, so this was near the end of his career. He was 39 at this point. He only managed a 0.5 war. He is a hall of famer though. So I'll get a, a full war for that. He's got a mustache and he's got real stirrups as well. So that will uh, bring me up to 25.8. Uh, just too close. Just a reminder. You were at uh 30.7. So I'm getting there mm. next. This guy, we've talked about him because his mom played in the women's professional baseball league during world war two. It's Casey Candell. Oh yeah. Casey. Uh, was he with the Astros uh, at this point? Yep. Yeah, and kind of a utility guy. Yeah. Now I'm wondering, was he the only? Uh, is he the only big league player that that had a a mother that played in the women's professional league? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Try and look that up. Not a bad year. 1.9 WAR in uh, 1991 for Casey. Uh, had a career high four home runs that year. Not not wow. much. Not much of the power for uh, Casey. But he had four. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I said 1.9. 
And uh, he definitely has real stirrups on. So that's going to get me a even two, bringing me up to 27.8. Next pitcher for the Dodgers. This was taken in Wrigley during the summer because there's a bunch of ivy behind him. It's Tim Belcher. Tim Belcher, um, he was with Oakland, then the Dodgers, yep. I think. Uh, let's see, who did he come up with? Tim Belcher came up with the Dodgers. Um, actually, did not play. He played for the Mariners for one year, did not play for the A's, at least not in the big That's leagues. Like, okay. hmm. In 1991, his war was uh, 4.3. I'll take that. Okay. Wow. Uh, he does have uh, two and ones on, though, so that is going to only be a 4.2, and that is going to vault me into the lead with a 32 even war with four cards left. So as long as they're not negatives, which I can tell you they're not going to be. Next, it is still listed as catcher here for the Brewers. It's BJ Surhoff. Uh-huh. Great Brewer, left-handed hitter, did play catcher, and then I think third base. He actually went to the, uh, yeah, you're right. He played third base, and then he ended up his career in left field and right field. Moved to the outfield most of the time. Yeah. Uh, 1991 was his, what, his fourth year in the big leagues. Looked like he had a pretty good year. Let's see, a war of uh, 1.6. He has got two and ones on, though, so that's only going to bring me up to a 1.5. But just as long as I'm staying in the positive here, I'm going to gonna head for a victory. Next, we've talked about this guy before. Here he is with the Reds. It is pitcher Jose Rijo. <laughs> One of my favorites. Uh, also a former athletic uh, Jose Rijo in uh, 1991. Wow, pretty good year. 15 and six, led the league in win percentage, and wow. had a WHIP of 1.077 for a starter. Yeah. That's that's a good uh, that's a good number. That's difficult to get. Ended up with a 5.5 WAR, uh, but he's got two and ones on, so that'll only get me 5.4. But I think it I think it's over. I think the uh, the bus is warmed and the fat lady is yeah. singing. I got two cards I left. In trouble. Uh, this one is a pitcher for the Royals, Mark Gubaza. Mark Gubaza is another. The Royals had some pretty decent starters. Yeah, they really did. You know, they had nothing else. They had Bo Jackson for a while. <laughs> like that was it. Yeah. Starters and Bo and Willie Wilson yeah. and Kevin Seitzer. Well, I get okay. Now, I know what I'm going to get. They they had George Pratt. Let's let's say that. right. <laughs> we're, we're being obvious here. That's Kevin Alka Seitzer, by the way. <laughs> And was Daryl Porter still behind that? I know he's with the Cubs or with the Cardinals and, and the Royals, I think. Uh, 1991 for Goobs was not a great year. Minus 0.4. He does have he's real. He's trying to help me out. He's got real stirrups on, though, so that's only going to be a minus 0.3. He has got some hair going on coming out of that hat, though. I mean, that is Beautiful. not aerodynamic, but it looks good. And then my uh, final card is uh, Outfielder. For the Cubs, it is one Mr. Jerome Walton. Jerome Walton was, did he win yep. Rookie of the Year that yep. year? he won okay. Rookie of the Year in uh, 1989. Didn't his, uh, who was second? I think it was his, uh, Dwight Smith, that's right, his teammate Dwight came Smith. in second. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's see what uh, he did in 1991. Uh, did not have a great year with the, uh, with the stick. He slashed 219, 275, and 330. Ouch. How do you even Ouch. stay in the lineup when you're only getting your on base percentage is 275 and your slugging is 330? Uh, that's terrible. Ah, uh, that's that he you might win. Let's see what his war was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Minus 11. No, he still had a positive war. He still had a 1.3 war. Weird. 
Yeah, that that is strange. Uh, he's got real stirrups and he's got a mustache as well. Doesn't really matter. It bumps me up to 40.1 in the war department, though, and gives me the win. That'll be my sixth win. I'm back to within two. Uh, you've got eight wins. I've got six. So, yeah, well, you know, I don't like losing. Uh, I don't like losing ground, but, uh, you know, you played well. Yeah, but you got a Ricky Henderson card, so that makes it a little hard for I me did. to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> it could be an auto win, though, you know, automatic. Yeah. But uh, we haven't. We, haven't we might need. Yet, to, so. We might need to think of some rules if you get a, a, a Ricky or a Nolan. Because the one thing we don't have is enough rules. Yeah, I know. We <laughs> get Manfred on the line. We need more rules. Uh, <laughs> the pace of wax pack hero play. Yeah, it's it takes five minutes to get through the rules. But anyway, let's start to wrap up the show. We want to thank all our listeners, as usual. We really do appreciate it. We've gotten a lot of interaction on social media recently. We've gotten some retweets, which we really appreciate. And uh, a lot of, a lot of, I'm having a great time on social media, on, on, on our show account, because it's, there's no politics. It's just baseball, essentially, and it's a lot of fun. So uh, we can be found on both Twitter and Instagram at Two Strike Noise. That is at TWO Strike Noise. Uh, we also appreciate you telling friends about us. Uh, we've had a, a pretty big bump here in the last month or so, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, Mark, people can also get a hold of us via the email if you want to tell them how to do that. Yeah, you want to talk to us via electronic mail, send something, probably another old piece of electronic mail, to two strike noise, spell it out, T-W-O, strike noise at gmail.com. All right, so uh, I want to thank you again. I uh, hope everybody is staying safe. I'm in. I'm locked down again, so I can't really go anywhere. Mark, you're probably getting close to another one uh, as well. But uh, everybody, please uh, stay safe. Uh, hopefully everybody can stay in small groups here uh, for Ricky Henderson's birthday. And uh, we will see you one more time before that big day. But uh, everybody stay safe. And we will see you next week on another episode of Two Strike Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day.